Good morning. And so as Pastor Chase talked about, my name is Kevin Boyle. I'm the student ministry pastor here at Great Oaks. And I am excited to be preaching for you. I'm excited that there's people actually in here. The last time I preached, uh, I preached just to a camera. And so I'm excited that there's people here. So thank you for venturing out in the, in the storm, in the rain. And if you're joining us online, excited for you to be joining us as well. I love this time of year. And so there's a lot going on. You heard from the announcements. Uh, as a student world, we're getting ready to kick off. And so we have our kickoff party happening next Sunday. We have a parents meeting. But also, how many of you are, are aware that football is starting this week? NFL football is coming back starting Thursday. So I'm excited for that. I'm also excited that uh, I love orchards. I love apples. And so here's a picture of my family. We were just at Tanner's over the weekend. And so I love anything apple. I love apple donuts, love apple fritter, apple crisp, apple pie, apple cider, like anything about apples. And I grew up in Minnesota. Some of you may know this. Some of you may not yet. But so I grew up in Minnesota, and I've kind of learned that I'm a bit of an apple snob. Um, the University of Minnesota is the one who produced the Honeycrisp apple, and so in my eye, that is the king of all apple. And so like it's Honeycrisp or bust. And so I've kind of learned that uh, as I kind of went and I tried some of the other ones, and I was like, no, no, just, just give me the Honeycrisp. I already know what I want. Um, and so I love Honeycrisp apples, but growing up in the land of 10,000 lakes, or 11,842, but who's counting, right? Nobody's really keeping track of that except for if you're from Minnesota. Um, you are always around water. Whether it's a lake, a pool, a pond, a river, there's water everywhere. And so as you can imagine, there is a popular summertime job is a lifeguard. And so lifeguards need to go to special training. They need to learn first aid, CPR, right, how to do pool rescue. But especially in Minnesota, they need to learn how to do a lake rescue because there's 11,842 of them. And that's a little bit different than a pool. Because oftentimes in a lake rescue, you will be in the water next to them. And unlike what Hollywood tells you, where you just swim out and pull them in and it's over, you actually swim out and they encourage you to bring a lifeline, whether that's a flotation device, a stick, even your own shirt, and something that you throw to them first. And you gauge their response. And so they, the person who's drowning, the victim, right, they're struggling, and so you gauge, and if they, they show trust in you, if they grab on and they show calmness and that they're willing to be rescued, then you proceed and you rescue them. But if they don't, if they're panicking and they're trying to get on top of whatever it is that you throw them, then you are to wait and to let them know, I'm here, be calm, and you need to see them to, be cal to calm down before you actually rescue them because it is dangerous to rescue someone in the water who does not know that they need to be rescued. Because our natural inclination is to get on top of whatever it is to get out of the water. And lifeguards have been injured or even killed going in too soon to rescue someone. And so as we continue this series of Redeemed, we've been talking about what it means to be redeemed, and we've had different stories, and talking about that being redeemed is to be ransomed for, paid for, reestablished. And so we're going to be continuing this story, and we're going to be looking at a person who knew she needed to be redeemed. It's a very unpopular story in Genesis 38. It's one that I will preface by saying I'm going to try to keep this PG-13. I'm going to summarize some things um, to kind of keep it. It's got some mature themes that we're going to kind of 
talk about, but it's the story of Tamar. And if you're not familiar with Genesis 38, I would encourage you to go back to reread through it uh, after the sermon to get the context, but I'm going to kind of summarize up until. And so Jacob was a son, had 12 sons. One of them was Joseph. We know a lot about Joseph, right, in his technicolor dream coat. There's a musical. We celebrate that. That's fine and dandy. Genesis 38 is right in the middle of the story of Joseph. And Joseph had just been sold into slavery by his brothers, including Judah. And so Judah happens to be walking back home, and he goes through Cana, and he happens to see a woman that he likes to marry. So he takes this Canaanite, the daughter of Shua, that's all we're told about her, has three sons. The first one is, is Ur, and he, we are told, is wicked in the eyes of the Lord. But before he dies, he is given in marriage to Tamar. This is where we're introduced to Tamar. So Ur dies, and in that patriarchal society, there's a thing called the Levite marriage. It's got several pronunciations. That's the one that I'm going with, the Levite marriage. Or basically talking about that the brother's husband will redeem Tamar. Basically this idea that the brother will try to give Tamar a son to, bring, to continue on Ur's lineage, right? And so Onan, we're told, does not want to do that. He's not interested in that. He basically wants the birthright for himself. And so if you're trying to think through this, like where have we seen this? Think of Lion King, right, with that crazy monkey's uncle, Scar. He wants the birthright. He takes out Mufasa and Simba. He knows if there's a Simba that's born, then he's got to kill Simba too. So let's just not even introduce Simba into the line, right? That's kind of his thinking. However, he doesn't deny himself the personal gratification of his role. And so I'm going to go with that to kind of keep this PG-13. He uses a not-so-well form of birth control um, and is found detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Again, encourage you to read through Genesis 38. But that is where we get to verse 11 in our story. And so if you want to open up your Bibles or follow us along on the YouVersion app. So this is Genesis 38, starting in verse 11, it says this. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in his father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Herat the Adamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that through Shelah that now had grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face, not realizing she was the daughter-in-law. He went over to her and by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will, we get, what will you give me to sleep with me? She asked. I will send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal, its cord, and the staff in your hand, she answered. She had given them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent a young goat. Oh, sorry, we're going to skip ahead. Uh, to verse 23, basically, Judah sends the goat, follows through on his promise. She's not there because she's back 
uh, living in her father's house. And then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will be a laughing stock. After all, I did not send her this young goat, but you did, but you didn't find her. Or I did send her this young goat. After three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law, I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Then Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not sleep with her again. So we have a lot to kind of unpack in these verses. So going back to verse 11, we get insight into what Judah was thinking. My first two sons have died, and it must be the result of Tamar, right? It was probably her cooking. That's what he was thinking, right? Or something along those lines. But he doesn't actually look and, well, maybe my, my sons were evil or not really good character people. And so he blamed Tamar. And so he had no plans of actually following through in that society his, his duty of providing another person to redeem Tamar. And so we were told that we go through, Tamar goes through, she lives at home, she wears the widow's clothes, right? And so she's walking around in society. Everyone would know that she's a widow, that basically she had no protection, no status, no cultural worth, right? She's basically walking around as damaged goods. And she's living like this, waiting for her chance to be redeemed, waiting for the third son. And she sees that Shayla grows up and she's not given to him, given to her in marriage. And so there goes her shot. And so she comes up with this plan. She hears that Judah's wife had passed away. She, he recovered, and then he's basically going on a business trip to oversee the, the shearing of his sheep. And so she comes up with a plan. She comes up with a plan to trick her father-in-law into giving her redemption, to giving her a redeemer, because in that society, in that patriarchal society, she was redeemed either through a husband or through giving birth. Now, before we kind of judge Tamar, right, let's get a little bit of cultural context into what's going on. And the first is this. There was a mandate by God to be fruitful and to multiply. And that was a very important mandate, especially early on in Genesis, right, where they were establishing, they were creating uh, the the human race, essentially, but it was important of establishing your family. It was, so giving birth was a huge deal. And if you're a farmer, you may understand this as well, producing free labor, right? People to work the fields, people to work the sheep. And so there was a big importance on that. There was also the protection that came of having a bigger family as other tribes and other people are trying to fight for land. And so there was a big importance on producing children. The second thing is that we believe that Tamar was coming from the land of Cana. And we know that there was a Hittite law that if there was not a brother to redeem her, the next step would be sleeping with the father-in-law. Again, establishing the lineage, establishing the family. And so this is something that Tamar would have at least been familiar with, if not even following And so before we kind of judge her of like, how could she possibly do that? That's just disgusting. Understanding the culture and the society that Tamar lived in. And that she was a desperate woman. She was desperate for a redeemer. She was constantly reminded 
that she was nothing. She had no status, no protection, no hope. And so she comes up with this plan to sleep, to trick, with, to trick Judah into sleeping with her, to providing her a redeemer. And so another thing I love about the fall are allergies. So I have my trusty water. Um, <clears throat> and so we can learn a couple things from Tamar. And the first is this, the first point is that God will redeem those who see the need to be redeemed. God will redeem those who see the need to be redeemed. Again, I am not condoning that tricking your father-in-law to sleep with you is a good recipe for good family dynamics. I'm not, I'm not saying that sinning is a good thing to do. I'm not saying that at all. I'm trying to provide some context into what Tamar was doing. But we see that Tamar was desperate. We see that she needed a redeemer and she was willing to risk everything for a redeemer. And so I think that this gets to the point of kind of the first two stages of learning and that you need to understand that you need to be redeemed. If you don't understand that you need to be redeemed, you're not going to seek it. And that's similar to the first stage of learning. The first stage of learning is unconscious incompetence, basically meaning, it's a fancy word of saying, ignorance is bliss or you don't know what you don't know. And if you don't think you need to learn something, you're not going to seek it, right? There's not going to be that desire to learn. And I think the same goes to our spiritual life. If you don't know you need a redeemer, if you don't know that you need to surrender your life to someone, then you're not going to do it, right? I think for me, growing up in Minnesota, there's a theme here, but growing up in Minnesota, playing hockey, there was a learning to skate with the puck. And so when I was little, I was skating and stick handling and learning and keeping my head down, and there was always this coach, keep your head up, keep your head up. And I was like, well, if I, if I lift my head, I lose the puck, so I don't want to do that. And then there's a rule change that happens when you turn about 12. They introduce this thing called checking. And so now it all of a sudden made sense why my coach kept saying, keep your head up. Because if I don't keep my head up, I get hit really, really hard. And so there's this pain that comes. And I learned very quickly that I need to learn to skate and control the puck with my head up. Because if I don't, I'm going to get hit, and that's going to hurt. And a lot of times pain or struggling or suffering brings us to that second stage, which is now conscious incompetence, basically meaning you are now aware that you don't know something. You are now aware that you need something. You now have this desire to learn. In the same sense that when it comes to our spiritual lives, a lot of times you are now aware that what you're doing is not working. A lot of times we talk about this is hitting rock bottom, right? You get to a point where you're just like, I have tried so long, for so, like done everything I could think of, and it constantly goes wrong right? I don't, my marriage is a mess. My, my family is a mess. My, my finances are a mess. Whatever it is, my life is a mess, right? And all of a sudden, you are now made aware the need for a redeemer. And that's kind of that same idea that we see. And we see that Tamar got to this point. She knew she needed a redeemer, and she was desperate for it. And we see throughout scripture, other times throughout scripture, people who do outrageous acts or things to reach out for Jesus or for a redeemer. And the first one is the four men. I like to think of them as adolescents, and I'll get to that in a second, but four men helping their friend who was paralyzed get to Jesus. 
And so they're carrying their friend on a mat. They get to the house. It's completely packed. They can't get through. And so they come up with this plan that we're going to climb up on top of the house, dig through another man's roof, and lower them in, right? The whole frontal cortex and, and kind of thinking through consequences wasn't fully there, I don't think. That's why I think they were adolescents. But so four men helping a paralytic, Mark II, jail, maybe death, of destroying a man's house, like breaking through a roof to get their friend to Jesus. You have the bleeding woman in Luke 8. Here's a woman who was unclean. She would have been told this. She would have known this. She would have known that the, the punishment for her to touch a rabbi would have been death by stoning. But yet she weasels her way through just to touch Jesus' cloak, just to touch it, just any chance that she has at being redeemed. We have Rahab in Joshua 2 and 6. She's the one who helps the Israelites. She basically commits treason in a hope of putting her hope in the Lord, right? Treason, life. We have the man with the unclean spirit. And so this is the man who's waiting for Jesus to get off the boat, right? He's been living in the caves, and this is where uh, Jesus talks to him and he says, we are, my name is Legion because we are many, if you, if you think of this one. So this is in Mark 5, right? The torment. And then the last one is the centurion. Here's a high-ranking Roman general who has men under him. He has money, prestige, power, going to a conquered nation's spiritual leader, asking for help, right? Losing risking his reputation of going to Jesus and saying, I'm desperate. Can you help me? And so we see through these, these stories in Tamar, right, the need that these people know that they need a redeemer and that God redeems them. But we also can learn a couple other things from the story of Tamar. And the first is we see the mess that the family is in, right? Can you imagine, like, just the reality TV show that basically is going on there, right, with just the lies, the deception, all the things that are going on in that, just in that family? We also see the, the patriarchal society where, where Tamar was going to be burned to death for uh, her infidelity, but yet for Judah, it was just going to be an embarrassment that she slept, he slept with a prostitute, right? We see some of that. And then we also see that, like, that Mari, if you remember Mari Povich, right, that, that, that show, where all of a sudden, like, they get to the point, and it's like, but who's the father? And then all of a sudden, Tamar comes out, the signet, cord, and staff, and the father is Judah, right? And, like, all the embarrassment that would come of that, like, in front of all the people of all of a sudden, like, <gasps> that goes on. And then you have Judah's response, the humbling of all of a sudden saying, but she is more righteous than I, for I did not fulfill my obligation. Right? So you have all that kind of going on. And it's easy for us to look at that and to be like, how can God be working in that? Or maybe I'm too, or maybe you're sitting here, or you're watching online, and you're thinking, my family is too gone, too broken. The relationships are too far. There's no way that they can be healed or repaired. Or maybe, whatever it might be, but Remembering this, that being redeemed doesn't set you back, but it sets you up for the plans of God. That being redeemed doesn't set you back, but it sets you up for the plans of God. 
of looking at that family situation, of looking at Tamar tricking her father-in-law to sleep with her. How could God use that to bring about anything, anything good? How could God use that situation? But that's the beauty. That's the beauty of our God, right? As Romans 8.28 tells us that we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose, right? And we know that in all things, God works for, the, for those, <laughs> works for the good of those who, are, who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so we're going to continue reading in Genesis 38, so starting in verse 27, and we're going to see how God uses this situation to bring about good and how it actually brings about blessing the rest of the world. And so in 27, it says this, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. And as she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he named Perez, and he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread in his wrist, came out and was given the name Zerah. And so in this, we see a couple things I want to point out. One, the scarlet thread. And so this is signifying the Redeemer, right? This, the hand comes out, and so this was supposed to be the Redeemer, the one that was born first. This is the one that was supposed to redeem Tamar. But then Perez comes out first. And Perez is the name that I want you to remember in just a little bit because he plays a very important role. But I want to talk about the scarlet thread for a second. The scarlet thread is something that we see throughout Scripture. And we see it in Rahab, who is an unredeemed woman living in the walls of Jericho. And we see that when the spies come and she helps them get out, they tell her to hang this scarlet cord, thread or cord, which if you look in the Hebrew actually means hope in the Lord. And so she's literally putting her hope in the Lord by putting the scarlet cord in the window. And basically they tell her anyone who is in this place will be saved. And so she's putting her hope in the Lord, the scarlet thread, the same idea that, that Tamar put around who she thought or told the midwife of who her redeemer would be, putting the hope in the Lord. And then we also see this in Naomi and Ruth, if you're familiar with the, the story of Ruth. And so Naomi makes this statement. You should call, don't call me Naomi, my name is Mira, because I am bitter, for my hope in the Lord is gone. And it's that same word for scarlet cord. It is gone. And the important, th- the reason why her hope in the Lord is gone is because she, her husband died, And all her kids died. All of her sons died. And that's why Ruth and Naomi and Ruth came back. And Ruth was her daughter-in-law. She married one of her sons. And they were both unredeemed. And we're going to look at who her redeemer was, which was Boaz, which actually was from the line of Rahab, if you go back. And so Rahab got redeemed when the Israelites came. And so Rahab was redeemed, and through her line, comes this man named Boaz. And so we're going to read in Ruth 4. So if you want to jump ahead to Ruth 4. And this is what the elders and the witnesses say to Boaz as he is declaring that he is redeeming Ruth. 
So in this process, he is saying that I am going to redeem her, I'm going to marry her, and this is their blessing to her in, or in them in verse 12. Though the offspring the Lord gives you by this woman, may your family be like that of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. So I want to, that family situation where Tamar tricked Judah into sleeping with her, her father-in-law, that is now the blessing that these elders are giving to Boaz and to Ruth, using it, that God had redeemed that family so much so now that this is a blessing that they are using, that may your family be like Perez's family, like Tamar and Judah, that God can work and move and restore even the craziest family dynamics. And then we're going to continue reading in 13 and 14 of how God continues to move in this. And so in 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she becomes his wife. Then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. And so we see this, that now the son was going to redeem Naomi. And so God redeems Ruth and Naomi. And one of the things that I want to say that's important before I kind of make my, my final point here is that God cared about the redemption of Tamar. God cared about the redemption of Rahab. God cared about the redemption of Ruth. And God cared about the redemption of Naomi because God cares about us personally. But one of the great things about God is why he's meeting our needs, our personal needs and our desires and the things that we want. He's also working something even bigger. And we're going to see that in just a second. But I want to make a declaration and I want to make something clear that I think a lot of times we, we can kind of be silent on. And that in the Old Testament, a lot of times a woman's worth came through her through marriage and also through the production or producing children. And, God, and women matter to God not because they can produce children, but because they are made in the image of God. And that women matter because, not because they produce children, but because they are made in the image of God. And a lot of times men, and I speak to a lot of times our high schoolers about this, of trying to raise up godly men, that we need to understand that that women are not just treasures to be owned, but they are treasures to cherish. And that we need to fight and advocate for women because they are daughters and sisters in Christ. And that they are in the image of God. And so I wanted to declare that before I make, I didn't want to belittle what God was doing in the lives of the women. But God was also up to something bigger. And we're going to see in verse 17 how he is coming up, establishing this line for the one who is to come that will redeem all. And so in verse 17, we'll continue in Ruth 4. The woman living there said, Naomi had a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And we see in this that we know that Jesus comes from the line of David. And if you follow, and if you actually read the next few verses in Ruth, it lists out how from Perez, that situation with Tamar, where Tamar was born, where she tricked her father-in-law to sleep with her, from Perez to David, it lists the genealogy. 
that God moved and established within the line of Jesus, within the Messiah, the one who was going to come and ransom us all, pay for us all, the redeemer of us all, started by Tamar's desperation for a redeemer. And that as we sit here and we sometimes think that our situation is too messy, too broken, that God can never use this, this is the lineage of Jesus, the one who comes, that God can use and move in all situations. But are you willing to be desperate enough to be redeemed? Are you willing to admit that you need someone else? Are you willing to admit that you need Jesus? And so I know that Old Testament stories a lot of times are hard to kind of be like, well, what does that mean for us today? Because we live on the other side of Jesus. Jesus has come. He has already died on the cross for us. And so what, is, what does that look like for us? What does this look like? How, how can we apply this to us? And I actually, we have a testimony video of Lexi Mata, who uh, two weeks ago was inspired to tell her story, her redemption story, because of Pastor Dan's message. And this is a story of a woman who talked about that she, she didn't grow up wanting to go to church. But yet, something changed. And so, check this out. I did not grow up going to church. As a kid, I did not know who God was. I did not know who Jesus was. I never attended church on a Sunday morning or went to Sunday school. Um, in middle school, my mom got remarried to my stepdad, and he decided it would be a great idea for us to find a church home and attend church as a family. So we found Great Oaks Community Church, and we started coming here. But the problem with that was I was not invested. I did not care. I zoned out during the sermons. Sometimes I even fell asleep during the sermons. I hated worship which is really hard for me to say, but I did not like it at all. I just wasn't invested, and I denied God of who he was and what he was trying to do in my life. But fast forward to when I was a junior in high school, I started going through a really, really hard time in my life. My boyfriend and I, who, have been dating, who had been dating since eighth grade, um, we had a really bad breakup, and so, since I had spent the majority of my childhood putting so much of my worth into him and into worldly things, once all of that was gone, I just felt worthless and I felt numb and I felt broken and completely unwhole. And so throughout that process, I realized that I needed to go back to church and I needed to rediscover the faith that I wished that I had. And so I decided to start driving myself to church on Sunday mornings. Um, I decided to start listening to the sermons, actually, and paying attention. And I felt like every sermon that I had been listening to was directly for my life and my circumstances at the time. I started listening to worship and really letting the Holy Spirit just consume me and consume the room. And I felt so at peace after that. Um, I, because of this, I started getting more involved in the youth ministry and I made so many friends that I had never imagined that I would have. I auditioned for the worship team and started using my voice for the Holy Spirit and I had never imagined that I would do that. I had intense stage fright before I even got on stage, but God allowed me to use my voice in such a way that I seriously could have never imagined. 
After that, I went on mission trips. I volunteered with youth as much as I possibly could. I sang for some of Great Oaks' biggest services, like Christmas and Easter. And God just really poured into my life in ways that He would not have had I not gone through that breakup. I am just so thankful for all that God has done in my life, and my testimony is not over. It is not done yet, but the Holy Spirit pours into me every single day, and I know that no matter what I go through, God will forever see me through, and He will be with me every single step of the way. And I am so thankful that I, had, that I went through what I did to get where I am right now, and I am so thankful that God did everything in my life to bring me here and that he continues to work through me every single day. And so that's an awesome testimony of Lexi. And I'm super excited that she's actually going to be leading us in worship in the closing song. And so an awesome testimony of how at one point she, had, she wasn't interested in God. She came to church. She didn't care about the sermon. She, didn't, she hated worship, and now she's leading us in worship. Isn't that an amazing testimony? And so for some of you in here, or maybe you're watching online, and so maybe God's speaking to you right now that you, during this, you have realized your need for a redeemer, that you cannot do it alone. Maybe the struggle of COVID has been too much, and it's finally gotten you to that rock bottom place. And so maybe if you are interested, we have prayer workers on the side. We have people who would love to pray with you, to talk you through that, to walk you through of just simply giving your life to Jesus, letting him redeem you because he wants to redeem you. And just like, just like Tamar in that situation, that it's not a step backwards. And actually it's the first step in walking with God, you can see how God can move and change and transform. And I know even talking with Lexi, that she, w she even admitted to me that she wouldn't go back on that painful time in her life because it helped her get her to the point that she is with God now. And so it's never too late. It's never too late to just surrender and to give it to God, whatever that situation may be. And I also want to talk about to people who... Uh, I deal with a lot of parents, and a lot of times they'll be like, my kids just aren't interested. They're going through a hard time. And no matter what happens, it always seems like they never, it never clicks. And I want you to continue to pray, continue and encourage you that God will continue to move and try to bring that desperation out of them, that God, they are never too far from the reach of God, but that they need to come to that realization that the struggle is real, the pain is real, and that the desperation, that they need a redeemer. They need to feel that. And so a lot of times, I know parents and people, they want to try to protect their kids. They want to protect the people. But a lot of times, you need to let them go. You need to let them be the prodigal son to go and experience the, the feeling of that desperation that they can come back. And God will be ready to run to them but they need to get to that desperation. And so maybe you're sitting here in your family and you're looking at your family situation of my marriage is gone. The relationships with my kids are too far gone. What's even the point? They never want to speak to me of still having hope, putting your hope in the Lord, that red scarlet cord, that that is your hope. 
that God is the one who can restore. God is the one who can raise dead bo dry bones. That God is the one who can move and miracles can happen. And so I'm trying to encourage you through these stories of redeem, that it's never too late to surrender and to give your life to Jesus or for your family or for your loved ones. And so I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna close with one last song. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for today. Lord, I thank you for these people who are here and the, those who are watching online. Lord, I pray that anything that is not of you is quickly cast aside. That your message, that your truth, that you love and you redeemed and that you have provided a savior for us is ringing true. And that there are people that you are speaking to right now that are responding to you. And it is because of your love that you first loved us, that you provided a way to reconcile us through Jesus Christ, that we can come and, and lift your name high, that we can be in relationship with you. Lord, that you can work in our situations, you can work in our marriages, you can work in our finances, you can work in our family dynamics, but you also care personally about us as well and that you can bring us back and that you wanna be in a personal relationship with us. And so Lord, we lift all this up to you in Jesus' holy and precious name, amen.